0: The KM Community Podcast, bringing you stories from Kent's communities
1: every week.
0: Hello and welcome to the KM Community Podcast. I'm your host Oliver Kemp and over the coming months I'll be bringing you the stories and important issues from communities all over the county. If you have a story you think needs to be told, just use the hashtag KM Community on Facebook or Twitter or you can email me at okemp at thekmgroup.co.uk. This week... Climate change has become a serious topic of conversation across the county. Recently, many local councils across Kent declared a state of climate emergency, with some pledging to be carbon neutral in just over a decade. Last week, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said that one of the best ways to combat the damage climate change has done is to reduce factory farming and meat consumption. How did we get here and what can we do about it? To discuss this, I'm joined by Dr Charlie Gardner, a lecturer in conservation biology at the University of Kent. The KM Community Podcast. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, Climate change, I think it's fair to say, is one of the biggest discussions of our time. It's regularly in mainstream media outlets now, but perhaps we don't uh, talk about we've got here as much as how we're, we're talking about where we are now. So maybe you could just briefly explain how we've got to this point with climate change.
1: Sure. Well, the reason where our climate is changing is because of something called the greenhouse effect. And this is something I'm sure everyone is familiar with. If you get into a car on a sunny day, it is um, unbearably hot. And that's because the sun's rays are, pen, are entering through the windshield. Um, and then they reflect off the interior of the car, and, but that reflection changes the, the type of radiation. So w- when it's reflected back, it can't penetrate out through the glass again. So the glass acts as this barrier and traps all the heat inside. Well, our atmosphere does the same thing. Um, and we have um, what we call greenhouse gases, things like methane and carbon dioxide, which create this greenhouse effect in our atmosphere. And this greenhouse effect is it's a natural phenomenon and it's really important. If we didn't have it, our planet would be too cold for life. What's happening, um, what has been happening since the Industrial Revolution is that we've been hugely increasing the strength of the greenhouse effect by releasing all these greenhouse gases. So since the start of the Industrial Revolution, we've been burning all this coal and then oil. And that's what's that? what that's done is taken all this carbon that was in fossil form, buried under the ground, and added it to the atmosphere. And the the greenhouse effect of our atmosphere is really, really sensitive, so it only takes tiny increases in the amount of these greenhouse gases to have this effect. So, um, for example, at the start of the um, Industrial Revolution, in the middle of the 19th century, the the concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere were 280 parts per million. and since then, through all our burning of fossil fuels and also you know, deforestation, ploughing of soils and things, that's increased the rate, of the concentrations to 415 parts per million. Wow, so that's um, a
0: big
1: increase. Then. It, it's a big increase, but in terms of, of you know, the actual number of molecules out there, it, it's it's not huge. Yeah, you know, 400 per, per per million, but it has this extraordinary effect. So, um, on average, the global Temperature on the surface of our planet has increased by one point one degrees since um, since since the Industrial Revolution. One point one degrees, and th- and that doesn't. When people think about that, when we talk about the,
0: uh, we had a, one of the hottest days on record in July, uh, with temperatures of thirty seven degrees in Kent. Um, a degree doesn't seem like much, but what does that one degree have? What what effect does that one degree potentially have on our on our world?
1: So, um. Well, it's important to remember one degree is an average, and it varies hugely from place to place. So, one, a one degree um, increase um, on average equates to about a five degree impact on, on uh, sorry, a five degree increase in the Arctic. In terms of the impact that has, it, um, you know, so warmer air holds a lot more moisture. So that means there's a lot more, uh, yeah. There's a lot more moisture in the atmosphere. That means we have a lot more um, severe storms. The the severity and the frequency of, of storms has increased hugely globally. Um, and then we, the other big impact is is changes in the predictability of the weather. And yeah, we'll have we've seen that over recent years, and this year in particular, we had, you know, we, you, we mentioned the, the hottest day ever in July. Well, we, in February, we had 20 degrees, um, and people were walking around Canterbury in, you know, shorts and flip-flops in February. It was extraordinary. Um, in May and July, we had massive hailstorms. So at the same time as, as we were having these record-breaking temperatures across July, across Europe in July, we also had huge hailstorms in, in Spain and, and in France. Hail, hail um, stones the size of golf balls, which is it's just extraordinary to have these record um, temperatures and huge hailstorms within weeks of each other. So the predictability of our weather systems around the world um, ha- has um, you know, been, been massively changed, and that's a problem because we rely on being able to predict our, our weather. Farmers need to know when it's going to rain. They need to know when to, to plant their crops. Last year we had um, you know, the record-breaking temperatures over the summer. We had a, a hot and dry summer. In some parts of England, agricultural production was down by 50%. Um, so you know, it, it, it impacts our, our agricultural things. It's also impacting the natural world in a huge way one of the things we we commonly talk about is uh, the melting of the polar ice caps the um, in the, the arctic ocean for example um is is frozen um, unlike antarctica which is a continent um the arctic is not it's, it's just open sea but there is sea ice on it and that sea ice is is melting rapidly and that's a real problem not just for for the polar bears and the seals um that are, that live on it and are you know, held up as, as, as the poster boys of, of climate change, but it's a, it's a real problem for the entire um, marine ecosystem and all the fish we depend on um, from that ecosystem, because sea ice um, forms the basis of the food chain. So there are algae which grow on the bottom of the sea ice and they are grazed by these tiny crustaceans called krill, like tiny, tiny shrimps. And those krill form the bottom of the food chain. They are eaten by all the the commercially important fish. Um, So as we lose um, um, sea ice, we will find dramatic decreases in, in global fish production, the 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 warming the un, the yeah, unusual warming in in the Arctic and um, temperate regions is causing a lot of forest fires. So um, you may be aware in recent weeks that much of Siberia has been on fire, and which is just absolutely unprecedented. In recent years, we've had huge destruction from forest fires in California, in in Australia, and elsewhere. Um, that the heating impacts forests in a lot of ways, um, it impacts coral reefs. So, you know, coral reefs are often talked of as the rainforests of, of the sea. They're a highly diverse and rich ecosystem that you know over a billion people depend on. Well, corals are highly sensitive animals that can only exist in a very narrow temperature range, and what we're finding now is with warm warming waters. Corals, uh, coral reefs are dying. It's a phenomenon called coral bleaching. So, there are, um, you know, there are all sorts of impacts on the natural world. Perhaps another one that people might have noticed is spring arriving earlier. Um, flowers are coming out to bloom earlier, the migratory birds are returning back from, from Africa earlier, and this is causing a lot of problems for, for a lot of species. So, for example, um, some migratory birds, um, come back and nest in this country, and they, know um, yeah, they they feed on caterpillars to to feed their their chicks. But by the time they arrive back, the caterpillars have already completed their their life cycle and metamorphosed into butterflies. So there's no food for them when they arrive back. So. Um, so their populations are declining drastically. Yeah. So across the natural world, we're seeing these huge ranges of impacts, which are having you know big impacts on on, on species and ecosystems, but also fundamentally. Um, on us because we rely on these ecosystems to, you know, for our survival.
0: Yeah, I wanna go back briefly to um, you talking about the, the ice caps melting. And it was only last week that there was that incredible video of the 12 and tons of Greenland ice melting in just 24 hours. So in the videos of quite shocking, people's reactions are, are quite shocked by it. Is there anything we can do about it? Because people see these um, and they're shocked by them, but is that gonna instigate any change? And if it does instigate any change, do we have the power to change that now at this point?
1: Absolutely. It's, so um, it's very important that we are now seeing these images and we're starting to talk about the, um, you know, the severity of the problems we, we face. I still think that we're not speaking about it truthfully enough. So you, know, you, you, you spoke about these images of, of, of melting ice caps in Greenland. Um, they are shocking, but they're still presented to us as an environmental problem. Not as um, a threat to our very survival, which they, you know, it genuinely, it genuinely is. In terms of, of what we can do, we need to um, fundamentally transform our society. We need, to, essentially, we need to change our energy economy. We are um, hugely reliant on on fossil fuels, the burning of, of um, hydrocarbons, coal, and oil and and natural gas. And we need to to stop doing that um, absolutely as quickly as possible. So there is um, a a body of the United Nations called the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And the IPCC gathers together some of the world's top climate scientists. And they don't produce their own research, but they synthesize existing research and try to yeah, synthesized that into into a digestible form for for, for policymakers so I uh, so and periodically they produce these reports which are really the cutting edge of, of the state of the art of climate science and traditionally um, so the the reports of the IPCC have tended to be um, mocked by by climate scientists that know because the IPCC is a political process and of course they put together the science but then the reports that they produce have to be agreed by all the member governments of the, of the united nations so they can only say things that absolutely everyone agrees on and so they tend to be slightly ridiculed for being far far too conservative well last uh, towards the end of 2018 the ipcc put out a report um which was about um, what the world has to do if we're going to limit the increase in temperature rise to just 1.5 degrees. And the report basically said, it's time to panic now. It's time to radically change the way we organize our societies. And
0: it's only recently that the IPCC um, mentioned the fact that, I mean, they they didn't say, you know, we have to move towards vegan and vegetarian diets, but it was suggested that this is one of the big ways that we can we can limit this. Do you agree with that?
1: I do. So um, meat production, animal agriculture, and particularly um, industrial meat production is a big contributor to, to climate change um, for a couple of reasons. One is that, that ruminants um, like cattle produce methane, and methane is a much, much more powerful um, greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. But the main reason is that eating meat is a vastly inefficient um, way of, of producing food. So because of, of the inefficiencies of an animal converting the food it eats into flesh. So um, the, generally, uh, you know, the, the figure given is, is of an order, order of magnitude. So a ten there's a 10 times reduction in, in energy. Um, between the food that a, that a, a cow eats and the, the energy it will, it will generate when it's eaten. So you know, what that means is lands that would be, um, the land required to produce enough meat for one person would have been able to produce enough plant food for 10 people. So it's hugely inefficient. Um, having said that, I'm, I'm slightly concerned with the way that this information is is present is used and presented because when we hear that we as a society needs to eat less meat what we' what we're told and what we hear is that we as individuals need to decide to eat less meat and I think that's highly unfair on us as individuals we need we don't need individual change we need system change and you know it's really unfair on us to to be told on the one hand you need to eat less meat but on the other hand, to go shopping and be presented with huge amounts of, of, of cheap meat and to walk the streets and be bombarded with advertisements for, for um, you know, burgers.
0: Yeah, um, but is, is the alternative feasible? Because in my mind, the alternative, if you're not gonna suggest that people need to make their own decisions on whether they do or don't eat meat, you are gonna be either restricting meat purchasing in supermarkets or restricting the advertising of meat. And yeah. then you've got that, some people might say then that you've got a big brother mentality happening where you're stopping people from eating the things that they want to eat.
1: Well, it's a question of human survival. Local councils and and governments around the country have declared a state of climate emergency. And we need to think about that word emergency. It is an emergency. And in an emergency, you change your normal behaviour. And of course, it's not going to be um, you know, all all pleasant, um, but it, it needn't be, um, you know, horrific either. If we start making changes now, but I think you know, we need to acknowledge that we cannot carry on as normal. With with regards to meat, I think you know, the most important thing is to. Um, to look at the economics of it and change the economics so that the huge costs of producing meat are factored into the price. You know, we eat a lot of meat now because it is artificially cheap. It's hugely subsidized and there are what economists call externalities. So the costs of meat production are not factored into it. Um, you know, Producing meat emits a hell of a lot of carbon and that carbon, it's, you know, It's taking away the futures of our children and and grandchildren. So that's a huge social cost that everyone is paying for meat production. If there were um, taxes on um, emitting carbon or a a, a proper price on on carbon that reflects the damage it causes to society, then that would be reflected in the price of meat and it would become... um, more expensive, we would treat it as a special thing as as we always have done, and don 't forget our, you know, our habit of, of eating meat every day and, and, and sometimes multiple times a day is a very new thing. You know, my parents grew up having meat as a special treat, perhaps once a week, and that 's how um, most of the world in, in non industrialized countries um, st- still still lives and yeah, I, I'm, I'm not saying we need to you know, cease eating all, all meat immediately, but we need to think about how we produce it. And we need to go back to having it as as a special thing rather than something we take for granted eating every meal.
0: Mm. You talk about um, just a little minute ago, you talked about the idea uh, of taxing meat. That's obviously going to be in the powers of central government. Now, A lot of local governments have been declaring climate emergencies. We've had councils like Maidstone and Tunbridge Wells in Kent who've done that. Um, Why is having that carbon neutrality target so important? And is it feasible for councils to actually hit this? Because they're all trying to do it. Maidstone recently pushed theirs back from 2030 to 2050 because they're obviously not feeling that it's feasible. Uh, but why is it important? And, and at this stage, is, 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 do local councils have enough power to instigate change?
1: I was actually at that council meeting in Tunbridge Wells a few years ago. I, I spoke as a member of the public to, you know, to encourage councillors to, to um, vote in favour of, of the climate emergency motion. And it was, it was a wonderful thing. You know, the, the, vote, the motion was passed 43 to 0 with just a single abstention. So people were really going for it. And you're right, this is um, something that's sweeping the country. Over half of our councils have now declared a climate emergency and so, so has Parliament. And there are, there are different ways of, of, of viewing this. Some people are a bit cynical seeing it as, as merely um, a symbolic um, gesture. It's, it's all talk. And of course, at this stage, it is all talk. It depends. It, it has to translate into policy change. It has to translate into action. Otherwise, it means nothing. But it is, I think it is important because it shows leadership. It shows a, a commitment. And um, once you've made that commitment, other things follow. So, for example, um, a few weeks ago, there was a planning decision on um, an extension to the M4 motorway in Wales, and the planning um, was refused, and it happened because a climate emergency had been declared. Um, So, yeah, this decision to go on building road infrastructure, which is well known to increase rather than decrease the use of cars, the planning decisions reflect the fact that it is an emergency. So that's really important. In terms of what local councils can do, um, I'm afraid I'm not a, an expert on, on, on local governance, and of course um, their, their powers are somewhat limited because many things are determined by um, national government or national Agencies like you know, there's a national highways agency for example, so so local councils don't have hundred percent power over the roads in, in their local authority But there there are lots of things they could do so um, in terms of transport, there are all sorts of measures to um, To reduce car use and try and encourage people to use active transport walking cycling and, and public transport or um, councils can provide uh, yeah. Improving public transport is hugely important and of course our, our public transport infrastructure has been decaying for for decades. It's hugely underfunded and impacted by austerity. Um, in terms of buildings councils can um, put forward policies to ensure that all new construction is, uh, is hopefully carbon neutral, um, zero carbon, if, if not um, then, then you're yeah, at least as efficient as possible. In terms of energy generation, councils can promote the uh, production of renewable energy on on council property. They can also require the use of of renewable energies in in, uh, new developments and require new developments to install things like ground source heat pumps or or, or solar uh, photovoltaics. Waste is important because landfill generates a huge amount of methane. So, and there's lots of councils can do at a local level to ensure that nothing goes to to landfill. Beyond that, um, they also need to divest from fossil fuel industries. You know, the fossil fuel industries are only able to to persist because people continue to invest in them, and and councils have huge investments, their, their pension funds and all the rest of it. So they need to divest um, from fossil fuels as, as soon as possible.
0: Are, are we talking wind power? Are we talking nuclear? What, what's, the, what's the kind of... This, what's the solution? Because obviously, as you say, our infrastructure is still so buried in fossil fuels presumably it's going, there's going to be some kind of crossover because you couldn't move straight to wind power. I mean, wind turbines take years and years to be made. The, the planning permission alone to build offshore takes a number of years. The, the structure, the infrastructure of building them and then operating them. So what, what would be the, the answer there?
1: So you're, you're right. We are talking about a transition, but this is a transition that we have to um, start with now. So that means we need to make these decisions now to stimulate these transitions. There is no one answer in terms of our, uh, our energy economy we need a highly diversified energy economy. there are all sorts of different ways of producing renewable energy you talked about wind we've mentioned solar there there is um, tidal power there's hydroelectric power there's a ground source and air source heat pumps. Different places will need to, um, Make best use of, of the yeah you know, the the environments and the natural resources available to them, but one of the it's increasingly recognised that we will um, depend more and more on micro power generation, so power that is generated on site rather than um, dispersed through a grid. If you don't mind, I'd just like to go back to uh, to one thing because there was one more thing I, I I wanted to say about what councils can do because all those um, solutions I suggested are about minimizing how much carbon we continue to release in the atmosphere. But even if we reduce that to zero very, very quickly, that still won't be enough because there's already too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and we need to remove that. We need to draw that out of the atmosphere. Luckily, we have this amazing technology to do that at zero cost. It's called a tree. Plants take carbon out of the atmosphere and convert it into their tissues. They convert it into wood where it's stored, um, and it's widely recognized. We need tree planting and, and sort of ecosystem restoration on a massive scale globally to draw down the existing carbon out of the atmosphere. Trees are the only technology we have to do this. And of course, councils are in charge of a lot of physical space. So tree planting on council land is hugely important. And of course, that brings all sorts of other benefits t- to it. Trees make towns better. People prefer to have trees than to not have trees. They cool it down. They support birds and, and insects. You know, Everyone recognizes these are a very good thing. And it's something that we can do cheaply.
0: So that's interesting. So that's one one of the one of the things that councils should start doing if they really want to reach this carbon neutrality target and start drawing drawing out the the bad things in the air is to start building trees, uh, start building trees start <laughs> planting trees
1: i've started um, talking about them in in technological terms yeah, so yeah and
0: yeah. <laughs> um, start planting trees around our counties and our, and our borough councils, so we can start, start improving i just want to finish on, on one more one more thing charlie so um extinction rebellion has probably been one of the most successful groups in recent years of mobilizing to talk about climate change and the effects that it has um we've seen demonstrations in around kent we've seen them we've seen children leaving school on a friday to to walk around canterbury
1: my own students
0: oh there you go okay um is this the generation that that has to has to make it count
1: it has to be um you know the ipcc say we have until 2030 to radically alter the way our societies are run otherwise um you know we are at risk of of Leading to a world which cannot support civilization. So this is climate change. Is um, you know it's a threat to our existence, and we don't have a lot of time. Which is why we use this language called emergency. Um, and I think yep. ex- extinction rebellion is just the most wonderful thing. It's you know the reason you are here talking to me today is because extinction rebellion has put the climate crisis into the limelight. You know, everybody knew about climate change before, but nobody was doing anything about it, and it wasn't a real concern for people. It was just ah oh, some some environmental issue that's going on in the background. Today, thanks to um, Extinction Rebellion, the environment is the third biggest concern for uh, UK voters. It's a bigger concern than health, crime, and immigration. Seventy-one percent of voters in this country think oh, that climate. Change is a bigger issue than Brexit. So, this has happened because Extinction Rebellion and um, the youth strikes inspired by, by Greta Thunberg have made the media, made the government realise that this is um, an emergency situation. With the, um, the uh, international rebellion that took place in London in April. Over 1,100 people volunteered to be arrested, were willingly arrested because they realized that this thing is so important that they were willing to risk their liberty um, to try and make change happen. I was at those um, at that rebellion in, in April. Um, not, I wasn't there for the full 10 days. I was there for three or four days, but I was so inspired by it. Um, it felt like... It was just such a hopeful moment. It finally, you know, environmentalists who know about the state of our planet and the way we're going tends to be really despondent because they felt that there was no turning back. We are going to utterly destroy our planet. Extinction Rebellion has changed that. It has given us hope and it really feels like this there might be a possibility for change. I was so inspired by it that I went back home and started an Extinction Rebellion group in my hometown, which I now run, um, and we're doing great things there. But really, it—you know this is the moment. We have very, very little time left to save ourselves, and we absolutely have to seize this opportunity now. Charlie, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
0: The KM Community Podcast, bringing you stories from Kent's communities every week.